0: at. It'd be great if you had it open in front of you. Last week we started a new series in Luke's Gospel, so re-entered Luke's Gospel but with a, a new series for now, beginning in chapter 9. And we looked at a passage from 9 verse 51 through to 10 verse 24, and we we asked a uh, maybe quite an unusual question. What what makes Jesus smile? What makes Jesus happy? Because uh, as I said last week, the text talks about a moment where Jesus was filled with joy and we discovered that 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 joy... That Jesus um, found and expressed was because his followers were doing the things that he'd chosen them and equipped them to do. They were messengers of the gospel, people who were sharing his good news with others. Today's passage, I think, in a way, keeps developing uh, the same theme. It's another stab at answering a, a broad question, and that is. How do we live the lives that God's made us for? It comes in a slightly different form. Verse 25, the lawyer's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. I'm sure people ask it to you in your workplace, your neighborhood all the time. They come, ring your doorbell. Where do I find eternal life? Yeah, people are nodding. Good. And, and if they did, you know, we know how to answer that question, don't we? We reach into our back pocket for the tract that we keep there for those occasions. Two ways to live, journey into life. Here's how you find eternal life. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, I mentioned this last week, and it's funny how we're immediately seeing it. Uh, We talked about the need for learning to use questions more when we're talking to people about life with God, about Jesus. And Jesus was the master questioner. So somebody asks him a question and he doesn't reach for the tract or give them the formula answer. He asks a question in return. And it's a brilliant question. It's so simple we probably are missing it, but it's brilliant. It's a lawyer asking you the question. So you engage him on his own terms. And you ask him, Well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? Tell me. The lawyer knows his stuff, so he he starts quoting from the law, from scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter six verse five, the Shema, the great Great Mandate of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. In our culture, John three sixteen is the big Bible verse. If anybody knows a Bible verse, that's the one they're gonna know. If you're a first century Jew, this is your John 3.16. If you only know one verse, this is the verse you know. And he quotes it to Jesus. So he he shows us that he knows the big verses. But he also shows us that he, he knows some stuff a little bit more off the beaten track. Because he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. Um, you, You could turn to that on page 122. You'd see that it's such an obscure passage that the NIV can't give it a better title than various laws. You know, it's just a string of of bits. It, it has all sorts of stuff about not spreading splendor, slander, Sorry, not uh, endangering your brother's life. Then verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy knows the Bible. He knows the big bits and he knows the, the small bits and he gives an answer. Is the answer any good? Well, Jesus thinks it is. He says, verse 28, you've answered correctly. And Jesus isn't just uh, flattering the guy or humoring him. Jesus really likes this answer. The reason we know that is because it's the same answer that he gives whenever he's asked the same question. So if you looked up in Matthew 22 on page 991, you'd find a lawyer asking Jesus the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which, by the way, is the same question. Because the question is, what's the law all about? And the law of God was given to lead God's people into life. So the question is actually, what's life all about? How do you live the life God's made us for? And Jesus gives the same answer. Same answer as this law. you love God and love people. If Jesus had left it there, this guy would have gone home really happy. You know, I I have some ideas. The the teacher here has validated them. It's all good. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. It's, It's one short comment that knocks this lawyer entirely off balance. He's talked about loving God, loving your neighbor and Jesus says, do this. And you'll live. If you want to know the deep, rich, eternal kind of life that God's made you for, then love God perfectly and love all the people around you in the same way that he loves them. That's it. And the lawyer's massively unsettled by it. How do we know that? Well, he does what all of us do whenever we're unsettled by any sort of moral command or demand on us. Luke tells us, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. What's unsettled this guy so much? Why does he feel he needs to justify himself? It's because he knows that if Jesus is right, and if he's right, that the, the law says we need to love God perfectly and love our neighbor. If this is the way to eternal life, somewhere deep in his heart he knows he hasn't a chance. He knows that he doesn't love God perfectly. He doesn't love people uh, the way God does. If that's what the law says, then the law's demands are, are just too big. I wonder I wonder as you sit there this morning and as you think about this, this knowledge that, that God is perfect, that we can't share company with him unless we're perfectly loving in this way that he describes. I wonder how you feel about that. yes you love God perfectly just think back on this week or this month I've loved God perfectly I've loved every person I've met in a a full and a wonderful way the way God intended it great tick tick I'm in eternal life The lawyer knows that. He can't put any ticks there. So he does what I am inclined to do. Whenever I'm confronted with a a moral standard, if the demands of God's law are too high for me, I try to find a way of diminishing the standard. This guy's thinking that this this bar, Jesus, that you've set is impossibly high. How can I lower the bar? How can I make the standards of the law ones where I could put a tick beside my name? So the lawyer acts just like a lawyer. sees if he can get himself off on a technicality. You say, love your neighbor. Who exactly is my neighbor? See what he's doing? What what he wants is to make the circle of neighbor as small as possible. If that circle is small enough, if there's few enough people in there, then I might just be able to put a tick and say, yes, I love my neighbors. I might be able to say, job done, if I'm good enough for God, if I keep the law, then I can inherit eternal life. This guy senses that he's so far below God's standards that the only way to be with God is to move the standards. To bring the bar down so that he can qualify. I say all of that because I think it's now the right context to have a look at the story. Now we're probably ready to hear this story something like the lawyer heard it that day so there's a man in grave need he's ignored by a priest he's ignored by a levite they're the good religious people they're the kind of guys you'd expect to to help but they don't and it's a lawyer it's a samaritan sorry who helps Uh, this guy. uh, That's a Freudian slip there. Uh, The Samaritan seems the least likely, but I said lawyer. Uh, A lawyer is the least likely. No, no, that, that can't be right. A Samaritan is the least likely person to help a beaten up Jew at the side of a road. If Jesus was telling the story in Belfast, in our times, he'd say, an Ulster Protestant fell into the hands of thieves and an Irish Republican came and helped him. That's, that's how he's telling the story. And it makes you wonder, well, why did it have to be a Samaritan? Jesus, why do you have to tell the story that way? You're, you're telling a story. You're not telling us something that actually happened. You're, you're choosing your characters. Why does it have to be an enemy reaching out to a wounded man who becomes the the definition of love of a neighbor. It's because Jesus, I think, wants to show me that while I'm like the Levi and the priest and probably wouldn't even bother helping the person who is part of my clan and tribe and, and family, the love that God calls us to is this enemy love. This loving a person despite the fact that everything about them is against you. And you see them vulnerable and broken and you love them instead. A love like his. Folks, if if I've understood this story right... I think what Jesus is saying here is that he says anybody who obeys God's law perfectly will live. If I always love God perfectly, if I always love my neighbor in the way that he made me to love my neighbor, then I can know life. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? You don't look like it's great news. Folks, it's awful news. If this is the way to life, to have a perfect love for God, to have a perfect love for all these people that he's put around us, then I'm stuffed. And probably so are you. It's awful news. God could give me a thousand lives to live and I wouldn't start to keep this great command as it's called. I can't do it. So I live my life more like this teacher of the law. How can I justify myself? How can I be okay by some standards that I introduce? How can I be okay because I'm slightly better than that worst of all people that I find over there? Brothers and sisters, I think we have here the bad news of the gospel. The bad news that we need to hear before the good news can be seen for what it is. God has standards. There's a bar and I can't bring it down. I'm stuffed. I am truly stuffed unless unless a baby comes and is born to a teenage girl in a Galilean backwater village unless that baby grows up to be a man who lives this, this kind of life who loves God perfectly and loves every single person whom he encounters in a perfect and wonderful way. Unless that man finally goes and dies a death, which he says is the moment where he takes the the punishment that I deserve and in that very act offers me the acquittal that I need he says take take my rightness all the ways in which I'm just before God and let these justify you then even I can have eternal life Then, in the way that God's chosen, I've kept the law. I have loved God perfectly. And I've loved my neighbor because he did. And he's given it to me. Folks, that's why I can stand here and say that I think I have eternal life. not because I do this stuff but because he did and he's given it to me one last question before we leave the good Samaritan behind does does that interpretation that, that I've just offered does that mean that loving God and loving your neighbor is not important if we've said we can't do it, if we've said that only Jesus can do it, does that mean we're off the hook, we forget about this? The responsibility to, to go and do likewise is is tied up in the text. It has nothing to do with us. I don't think so. Jesus never, ever says... You know, that, that law is not important. Loving God, loving people. He, as I said, I'm, that's, that's his answer to the question of where we find life. So something has changed here, but we're not sure what has changed. Well, what's changed? What's different? If we bring the gospel to bear on the story of the Good Samaritan, well, here's, here's what's changed. The, the law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says you can't do this but you can live anyway because Jesus can and he did but even in the gospel it says do this not, not so that you can live do this because my life's in you because I'm the one who can love God perfectly and who can love other people I'm the one uh, who's going to put my spirit in you I'm going to teach you how to do it. How to love God and love other people. Don't justify yourself any longer. Let me justify you. Yeah. We are called to love God and love other people. But only as as Jesus, by his Spirit does it in us. Much more quickly, this short incident with Mary and Martha, I should explain quickly that I've chosen to preach these two uh chunks of Luke's gospel together this morning. Both of them, I'm sure you can see, would have made for great standalone sermons, and I'm sure that's what most preachers, most of the time, would choose to do with them. Uh, there's so much more we could have said about the Good Samaritan. I'd love to have ages to talk about Mary and Martha. Why did I choose today to take them together? Well, it's to do with the way these gospels are written. W- whenever Luke wrote his gospel, you understand he's not making stuff up. What he's doing is he's a, he's a gatherer of stories and sayings of Jesus. They're available to him either in written form in some cases or in oral traditions. So his job as a gospel writer is to select which of these stories and sayings of Jesus I'm going to share with my audience to, to select them, but also there to to order them, to, to put them in the order in which he thinks they can best communicate to arrange them. I think this selectivity is going on here in quite a, quite a special way at this part of Luke's gospel. This journey to Jerusalem that Jesus is on, I, I describe this part of Luke's gospel as a journey to Jerusalem beginning in chapter 9, verse 51. If you read the next 10 chapters, you won't find there a sort of chronological, this is what happened next, this is what happened next, this is what happened next. The language gives it away. If you look there, verse 25 of chapter 10, on one occasion, verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, chapter 11, verse 1, one day, it doesn't have the feel of saying, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning this happened, but... 4.30 4.30 in the afternoon this happened, the, the next morning. No, it, it feels, more like, feels more like we're conversa- in conversation with Luke, sitting around the dinner table, remembering the things that Jesus did and said, and Luke's telling the stories. Oh yeah, there was that time, and there was that time. So he gets to choose which incidents, which things of Jesus he puts side by side. And I think that's the case here. I think there's a reason why Mary and Martha come straight after the Good Samaritan. Hold that thought for a second. It's a great wee story, isn't it? I I love the psychological realism of the Bible. Do you ever host people? Do you ever have conversations, anything like the Mary and Martha one, with the team, the members of your family who helped to host? Does that ever happen? Maybe not. I think I recognize it. I think I, I see it. If you've ever hosted people, if you've done that with other people, you will know Martha's pain. I'm not going to rehearse the story. I'm not going to overanalyze it. I'm just going to go straight to what I see its basic meaning to be. Whenever Jesus and this group of at least 12 disciples arrive into Martha's house, Martha sees everything that needs to be done she gets stuck in. Good honour. Brilliant. Whenever Jesus and his 12 disciples arrive in Mary's house, Mary sees the opportunity of the moment. The Savior of the world is in my home. And I get to listen to him. I get to be with him. Do you see now why Luke's put these two stories together? We started by asking the question, how do you live the life that pleases God? You love God and you love other people. Well, the Good Samaritan story is all about loving people, isn't it? Loving your neighbor. This is the, the life that God calls us to. But in this short story of Mary and Martha, we've been given an image of what it is to love God. Show up Be present to him. And when you take the two stories together, what you have is God saying to us, make yourself available to people and make yourself available to me. Love God, love people. Folks, I'm nearly finished, but it struck me as I was working on this this week, I hope you don't think I'm nuts. I hope you don't think I'm nuts to think that you could actually live this kind of life, a life that's all about loving God and other people. I know that that's crazy by our culture standards. I, I hope you know this. I hope what I'm saying here doesn't sound okay to you or normal. I hope you understand that our culture has been leading us in an entirely different direction for as long as you've lived. I grew up in the 1980s. That's the formative teenage years of my life. Whitney Houston was telling us then what life's all about. The greatest love of all, learning to love yourself. That's the greatest love of all. Jesus Christ says, love God, love people. Whitney and every other culture maker I know says, learn to love yourself. Life is becoming one endless selfie opportunity. Our our levels of navel gazing and narcissism are going through the roof. Love God. Love other people. Do you know what struck me about this? I, I don't have a whole lot of time in my life and probably like most of you. If I took seriously God's call to, to somehow be present to him and to be present to other people at least in some sort of way something's got to give I mightn't have time for all that self love I might have to leave some of that behind It might have to drop off the bottom of the list and I thought what a relief what a relief I don't have to become a navel-gazing narcissist. When I look in the mirror, I don't have to say to myself, oh, isn't he lovely, the love of my life, the guy I've pinned everything on. I can say there's a guy who was made for something much more than that. I can lift my eyes to God and love him and as his grace grows my miniature little heart I can grow at loving you too there are different ways to love God and our neighbours and um, I, I don't want to even try to suggest what ways God is calling you to do that. Uh, If you pay attention, I'm going to say some stuff now, and Dan's going to say some stuff in a moment, both of which are kind of illustrative opportunities, something to think about. I I said, uh, I I spoke to you about this a few weeks ago in the Genesis series, I was preaching on... um, why we're here, what God made us for. Um, and I said something, you know, the importance of, for me, of God calling us to be with Him. Well, that's never left me. For weeks now, I've been trying to understand that better and enter into that. What does it mean for me to be with God? He made me to be with Him. What, is, what does that mean? And I shared with you, I think, at the time about praying a little bit more and a, a bit differently. And praise God, I, I, I'm still somewhat doing that. Uh, a, wee bit, a wee bit after I started doing that, I also discovered I wanted to, to be with God in his word a bit more. If you're a person who decides only to pray, then I suppose one way of looking at that is saying to God, "Let's let's be together, let's have a conversation, and I'll talk. I'll say to you all the stuff that I want to say to you. And that's what my prayers have been like. But a few weeks ago I, I realized well I just want to be hearing more from the Lord so I started I restarted a Bible reading plan that I've used occasionally in my life hadn't been reading my Bible in a, a regular committed kind of a way hadn't been available to God hadn't been showing up uh, and I started doing that and it's been great some days it's been very ordinary you know I've read it and gone there it is. And some days it's been, whoo! How did you know I needed to know that today? How did you know I needed that for me so that I could share it with somebody else? So, all that to say, I've been looking for ways to to be with God, to to love God, to be the Martha character, or sorry, Mary. What we need to be is a Samaritan Mary, don't we? So to be the Mary character, yeah? Yeah. I think I want to do that. Um, the reason I share that with you is I'm probably going to invite you beginning in January to see if anybody wants to have a go at reading the Bible. A bit like a, a long-term version of the community Bible experience which we had here a while ago where we say to ourselves, right, let's try and be available to God, show up, read his word together. I'll Maybe get a chance to, to say more about that over the next few weeks uh, and maybe send some stuff out. Um, yeah I'll leave it there and hand back to Dan